Chapter Twenty Three of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three At Bay and in the Bay. Every one who can call to mind that year of bad weather, eighteen sixty, will bear me out in saying that it showed no weakness, no lack of consistency to the last. Rain and chill were the rule of the summer snow and severe cold the order of the winter in the beginning of december the earth was sodden and the rivers thick with flood then the sky was amassed with fog and the trees hung low with the trembling drip and even the humble weeds and grass were bearded with a glaucous reek not crisp or bright as of rime or frost but limp and dull and bleary having never seen such a thing till now i could not tell what to make of it but Uncle Corney, who had been compelled for years to watch the weather, said, Up with all the winter apples, and the glau morcow, and the bury rance, up with them all to Covent Garden, or we shall have them frozen on the shelves, or even if we can keep the frost out, we shall have the vans snowed up. Things look just as they do now in December 1837, only the ground was not so wet. Go down to the barges and order ten tons of coal, we shall want it all, and twenty cauldrons of gas coke. The frost will last till February, and the fuel will cost a rare price then. I was inclined to laugh at this as a bold and rash prediction, but it was more than verified by the weather that set in upon the 18th of December, not with any sudden change, but the cold growing more decided. By this time Honeysuckle Cottage was thoroughly cleansed and in good trim, painted and papered, and neatly furnished, with Tabby put in to keep it warm, but only permitted to use one room. And I used to go there every day, and sit in the little parlor, reading the only letter I had yet received from the one who was more to me than words. It was written in a small, clear hand, and dated on the very day after my visit to her, and the purport of it was to comfort me and persuade me to wait with all endurance, until I should have leave to come again. And long as the time had seemed, and dreary and empty of all except distant hope, I had done my best to get through it, with the courage of a man and the faith of love. It is for my dear father's sake, she wrote, that I am compelled to ask you this. There has been a fearful scene which even his sweet endurance and wonderful temper could scarcely carry him through without sad injury to his health and work. His heart is not very strong, and though he tries to laugh these troubles off or despise them as below his notice, to me it is plain that they worry and wear him a great deal more than he deigns to show, and I know that he bitterly reproaches himself, although he so rarely speaks of it, for having been so deluded as to place nearly all his property in the power of those who should only have a part. When he looks at me in size, I know exactly what he is thinking of, and it is my place to save him from all that can be avoided of strife and ill-treatment. A more placid and peaceful man never lived, yet comfort and peace are denied him. In a few weeks he will leave home again, if this house can be called a home, and then I should like to see you, dear, with his permission before he goes, because I am not afraid for myself and I may have to settle what is to be done if a certain gentleman should come back and try to force his visits upon me. 
while my father is away. If this should happen, you shall hear it once unless I am locked up, as I used to be sometimes. Do not write, she takes every letter, and it would only cause more misery. We must trust in heaven and in one another, for I know that you love me as I love you. This very faithful and sensible letter was beginning to grow threadbare now, or rather was returning to its original state of thread with my constant handling, and it left me in a sore predicament, which became sorer as time went on, and no other tidings reached me. It was grievous to reflect that with better policy and judicious flattery I might perhaps have contrived to get a scrap or two of information even from the stately lady of the hall, or at any rate through Mrs. Marker, but that good housekeeper shunned me now, probably under strict orders, or if ever I managed to bring her to bay, she declared that she knew nothing, and perhaps this was true, for the choleric sisters held little communication. As a last resource, I got Mrs. Tapscott to promise her niece the most amiable tips for every bit of tidings she could bring. But nothing came of that, and by this time verily my condition of mind was feverish. In vain I consulted that oracle of the neighborhood, Uncle Corney, for an oracle he was now become, partly through making good figures of his fruit, partly through holding tongue and shaking head, and partly, no doubt, by defeating the lawyers and smoking out old Accurate. But all I could win from this oracle was, go up and get in at the window. I was ready to get in at any window, big enough for my head to pass. If only I could have found Kitty inside and quick to forgive me for coming. But to talk is all very fine, and old men make it do for everything. To act is the province of the young, who have not found out how vain it is. Being touched up, therefore, on every side, for even old Tabby made sniffs at me, and Celsey Bill winked in a manner that meant, Would there ever have been seventeen young Celsies if I had hung fire as you do? And my uncle said quietly between two puffs, In for a penny, in for a pound. That used to be the way when I was young. Being stirred up more deeply by my own heart, which was sadly unquiet within me, I set off at last without a word and not even a horse to help me. A frost had set in, that mighty frost which froze the Thames down to Kingston Bridge and would have frozen at the London Bridge except for one pause at the end of the year and the rush of so much land water. The ground was already as hard as iron, but no snow had fallen to smother it up. The walking was good and the legs kept going to keep one another and the whole affair alive. There must have been a deal of ground soon overcome between them, for they were not out of Uncle Corney's gate till Sunbury clock struck three, and they knocked against the gate of Bullrag Park when the twilight still hung in the sky. And this had been done against a bitter east wind with a low scud of snow flying into the teeth and scurfing the darkening road with gray. Here it was needful to reflect a little, for to think against the drift of air is worthless for anything weaker than a six-wheeled engine. I found a little shelter from the old Scotch firs and halted in their darkness and considered what to do. The house, about a hundred yards away, looked cold and grim and repellent and abhorrent, except for one sweet warmth inside. 
The dark shrubs before it were already powdered with a gathering crust of snow, and the restless wind was driving cloudy swirls of white along and in under the laps of blue slate. So far as I could see, one chimney only was issuing token of some warmth inside. I had scarcely shivered yet in fierce cold of the road, and the open tracks where no road was, but I shuddered with a deep thrill of anguish and dismay as I watched that bleak house, with the snow flitting round it, the bitter frost howling in every wind-blast, and not a scrap of fire to keep my sweet love's body warm. If they have not quite starved her since her father left, I asked to myself, being sure that he was gone, they will not lose this chance of freezing her to death. I have heard what they do in such weather. They keep her where the water jugs burst, and the ice is on the pillow, while they roast themselves by a roaring fire. May they roast for ever. Slow as I am in imagination, this picture had such an effect upon me that I caught up my stick which had stood against the tree and determined to knock the front door in if they would not admit me decently. But glancing back first to be sure of having the place to myself, I beheld through the wind-hurried flakes an advancing figure. Two looks were enough. It was my darling, bending to the wind but walking bravely and carrying a basket in her ungloved hand her little thin cloak and summer hat, for they had given her no other, were as white as the ground itself with snow, and so were the clusters of her rich brown hair, which time shall whiten by the side of mine. But her large blue eyes and soft rosy cheeks were glistening bravely through the fleecy veil, and a smile of resolve to make the best of all things showed little teeth whiter than any snowflake. Through the brunt of the storm she had not described me until she was suddenly inside my arms. Then she dropped her basket in the snow and looked up at me and tried hard to be vexed, but nature and youth were too many for her, and she threw her glad arms round my neck and patiently permitted me to leave no snow either on her face or in her curls. "'Oh, Kit, if they should see us from the house,' she whispered, and I said, they had better not, or they shall have this stick. However, for fear of any rashness about that, I held her with a smooth and easy pace, for she could move beautifully with my arm round her, which no clumsy girl could do, to a snug little nook, where a large bay tree broke the power of the wind and screened the snow. Here we found a low branch upon which we could sit, with the fragrant leaves to shelter us, and ever since that, when I smelled a bay leaf, I can never help thinking of my love, even when it is in pickled mackerel. When I had told her a thousand times of my delight at finding her, and she, with a hundred blushes perhaps, had begged me to show it judiciously, I asked her where she had been in such dreadful weather, and what she had got in the basket. Two bottles of brandy, she answered as coolly as if it had been a cowslip ball. From the bricklayer's arms I had to fetch them, because nobody else would go out in the storm. What? I cried, looking at her pure and bashful eyes. Do you mean to say that you are sent alone to a common public house where the navies go? Oh, they never say anything to me, dear Kit, but I cannot bear to go when there are noisy people there, and I believe that my father would be angry if he knew it. It has only happened once or twice when the weather was very bad. 
Does she ever send her own daughters there? I asked as mildly as I could, for Kitty was trembling at my natural wrath and stern manner. Oh, no, she would not like to send them at all, even if they would go, which is very doubtful, but she says that my place is to be useful, and she never can do without brandy long. She gets tired of wine in the evening. The case is just this, I said, wishing to let off my wrath that I might speak of more pleasant things. She revels upon your father's money and squanders it on her children's whims. She locks him up in a corner of his own house and makes a slave of his only child, starves and beats her, and degrades her by sending her for drink to a pothouse. A young lady, the best and sweetest and noblest. I was obliged to stop in fear of violence, but my dear one became all the dearer to me, as I thought of her misery and patience. If my uncle Cornelius tried to put upon me, was I ever known to put up with it? and consider the difference betwixt an uncle who fed me and kept me and allowed me money, or at any rate promised to do so, and a vile stepmother who ruined the father and starved and bullied and disgraced the child. Truly we learn to forget right and wrong, as our country has learned in these latter days. No one can degrade me but myself, Miss Fairthorne answered gently, and without any thought of argument but I will not go again if you think it wrong. I have been so accustomed to run errands for her that I never gave a thought to the difference at first, and having done it once I could not say no the next time. But I know it is not nice, and I will never go again now that I know that you object to it, dear. You won't be angry when I have given you my promise. To send an angel to a public house, but I said no more about it for the angel sighed and put her hand into mine to be forgiven. Then I asked her, with my wrath turning into jealous pangs about that old villain who dared to imagine that his wealth, if he had any, or at any rate his position, could bridge over the gulf between virtue and vice, loveliness and ugliness, sweet maidenhood and sour decrepitude of bad living. Of these things I could not speak to her, but her modesty shrank, without knowing why. That poor old gentleman has been very ill, she answered in her clear and silvery voice, which made me thrill like music. He went to sea to some business in Lincolnshire and was laid up for weeks with ague, but he is to come back when the weather permits. If he had appeared, I would have let you know, for I should have been frightened, with my father not at home, but I am sorry to say there is someone coming more formidable to me than Sir Cumberlay is. You will think I am full of dislikes, dear Kit, but I do dislike that Downey so. He is her son Donovan, her only son, and she worships him, if she worships anything. I had heard of this Donovan Bullrag more than once, but knew very little about him, except that unless he was much belied, he combined the vices of both his parents, but my duty was now to reassure my kitty and leave her in good spirits, so far as that was possible, though every minute of her company was as precious as a year of life to me, I was fearful of keeping her longer in the cold and ensuring a very hot reception from her foes. Of the latter, however, she had not much dread, being so inured to ill usage, 
that a little more or less was not much consideration, but her cloak was threadbare, and her teeth began to chatter as the keen wind shook the tree above us and scattered the snow upon our shoulders. In a few words we arranged to be no longer without frequent news of one another, for I told her very truly that without this luck I must have gone home in utter misery unless I had forced my way to her, and with equal sincerity she replied that she did not know what she could have done, for the time had been dreary and desolate. Then she promised to write me every week, not long love letters, for of those there was no need, with our pure faith in one another, and her opportunities would be but brief, yet so as to let me know that she was safe, and not persecuted more than usual. These letters she must post with her own hand, and my answers she must call for at a little shop kept by an old servant of the captain's, who would not betray her. If possible, she would write on Saturdays, so that I might get the letter on a Sunday morning, and if anything were added to her troubles I might come, and try to let her know of it through Mrs. Wilcox, who kept the little shop she had spoken of. With this I was obliged to be content for the present, much as I longed for a bolder course, she would not leave her father without his full consent. But you shall have something to remember me by, and something, too, that came from him, she whispered as her fears began to grow again. He gave me a watch on my last birthday, a beautiful watch with a blue enamel back, and Kitty done in little diamonds. She said it was much too good for me, and she gave it to Geraldine, her youngest girl, but, oh, I cheated them out of something because I felt that they were cheating me. They never knew that he had given me a gold key for it, a lovely little key with a star in the center. Here it is. See how it sparkles in the dusk. Take it, my dear, and wear it always. And you will think it is the key of my heart, Kit, which you managed to steal down at Sunbury so. You must not give me anything in return. Not now, at least. Perhaps some day you may. It was now so dark that I ventured to lead her and carry her basket to the little side door, for that part of the house was dark and empty. Then she gave me a sweet farewell, with one little sob to strengthen it, and the snow whirled into her glistening eyes, and a shiver ran through me when she was gone. End of chapter 23